This is The Lisa Show with Lisa Valentine Clark and Richie T. I'm a pretty clean person. I pride myself in it. But I even I know that there are certain places, you know, that are maybe not as gross? clean. Well, no. I, I, hidden places, right? Don't you think? Don't you think everyone it, it thinks eh, it's clean enough in certain places? Sure. sure. In my house, uh, being the bachelor that I am. <laughs> oh, dear. My my uh, bacteria hotspots, if you will, yeah. are places where I just am like, yeah, I don't know that I would go in that bathroom like there's the other bathroom yeah. maybe yeah. i would use that one you know i spray bleach where you need to spray bleach but there are some areas where where i think a lot of us are unsure well how often do we clean that when do we clean that so we're going to get down to it about how we can really get rid of of this because we we are looking for overall health keeping ourselves and our families uh, healthy. We have invited Brian Sansoni. He's a senior vice president of communication, outreach, and membership at the American Cleaning Institute. Yeah, there's an institute for that um, to discuss bacteria hotspots and the importance of personal hygiene. Hey, welcome, Brian. Uh, good morning, Lisa. It's great to be on your show today. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Um, uh, as we explained a little bit, Richie may need to improve in some areas of, of deep cleaning. I think I'm okay, but, you know, there's always that nag in the back of my mind that there's something I'm forgetting. Um, t- talk a little bit about where these bacteria hotspots in our homes may be that need a little extra cleaning. Yeah, so we every year we typically undertake a national cleaning survey where we, we ask folks about their cleaning habits and, and behaviors. And to the point you were just talking about, um, Seventy-four percent of us light clean most of the time. Well, only a quarter of us regularly deep clean. So there are spots around the house that we don't think about too often. Um, And candidly, we just kind of forget to clean. Yet we come in contact with a lot of these surfaces every day. Doorknobs, for instance. Mm. These are perhaps the things that we touch the most every day, whether we're at home or at work. How often do we clean it? Not often enough, and especially if there's family members or if you're in the office, you know, you, how many coworkers are you know, touching those same doorknobs? So it's very important to regularly clean those doorknobs. Just take one of those disinfecting wipes. That'll take care of it. You just don't think about it yeah, that right. often. So um, I so I won't be touching doorknobs today. Where, what, what else will <laughs> what I not be doing? What other you got for us? Yeah. <laughs> um, what about faucets? Okay. Again, we wash our hands, you know, as, as, as we, we certainly should uh, many different times a day. Um, now, 45% of us, according to our cleaning survey, mm-hmm. will regularly clean, or 70% actually say they will clean faucets, only 45% doorknobs. So it's really mm-hmm. important, again, just to take a, a wipe on those faucets. Again, you have probably lots of people in the kitchen or if you have kids that are running around the house, make sure you regularly wipe, de- uh, wipe those faucets. Again, you can, a disinfecting wipe is really all you need. Um, the refrigerator. When was the last time we cleaned our refrigerator? Um, 41% of the people in our survey said they didn't remember the last time they cleaned the refrigerator. Ooh, Yet yeah. all of our food and, and drinks are in there. When was the last time we had kind of cleaned that out because there is maybe expired food or heaven knows what else in there? You really should keep that refrigerator clean. You really How often should. do you think you should clean your refrigerator? Once a month. Once a month. And, and you know what a good time is? Before you go grocery shopping because oh, that's yeah. the time that your fridge is most likely um, – you know, less full. So before you go grocery shopping, you can, it, it's, it'll be a little bit less cluttered. That's the time to really uh, clean out uh, a lot of those drawers and shelves, especially where your, your fruit and veggies are putting in. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's at the, towards the bottom of the fridge. Uh, it's a little easier to clean before you go grocery shopping. What, are, what, what are some other places that, that maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't think of or uh, yeah. maybe a little less visited or, or kind of hidden nuggets? Great question. What about that guest or second bathroom or toilet, the one that's not usually used? Hmm. Well, guess what? In case you have uh, drop-by visitors and, or you, they're, they're coming over in a half an hour, 
you know, you, you want to quick clean that. You should regularly clean it anyway uh, because, you know, there's still uh, dust and heaven knows what else that can, uh, can accumulate in there. So if you do have that second um, uh, bathroom or maybe it's that, that bathroom that you might have in the basement that doesn't get cleaned too often, think about that. And, and then Noah, another one, um, bed linens. Um, our survey said 23% of people couldn't remember the last time they washed their sheets, which is oh, kind wow. of gross. Yeah. So, yeah, you should be cleaning that, boy, at least once or at least once or uh, once a week or once every two weeks. So change those, change those bed linens. How dangerous is this bacteria? If, if people are listening and thinking, well, you know, yeah, maybe I'm not the best cleaner, but big deal. What Has would you say? Me? Yeah. Right. Most of this, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be very harmful. But I think where we really need to pay attention, though, mm-hmm. is actually during cold and flu season. And that's in particular where we need, really need to pay attention. And actually, we, we may not think about it, but, but flu season actually starts in August. So it's the, I think it's those particular times of the year where we really need to, to pay attention and, and in situations in our, uh, certain surfaces when there's food preparation going on, where you're making chicken or different kinds of meat, you know, you do want to be careful of some of those foodborne illnesses that can really harm us. That's why regularly uh, cleaning and disinfecting the countertops, hmm. that's when you really be concerned. It's those situations where the, the, the chance of bacteria making us sick um, is a threat. So it's those important uh, routines um, when you're doing those daily activities. That's what's really important. What about uh, things that are, you know, that clean for you, like a dishwasher or washers and dryers? How often should you clean those? Once a month. Um, really? Because, again, now it's it's easier to, to clean those appliances because now, now there are usually little tablets or, or packets that are specifically designed for cleaning your dishwasher or cleaning your washing machine because again over the course of a month you're, you're doing your maybe dishwashing uh, every day or several times a week sometimes there can maybe be a little buildup uh, maybe it's some some calcium or lime or some food particles in there so it's really important to keep an eye on that and you can use one of these little uh, packets. Uh, it's just like the, the the little dishwasher tab that you normally use, except it's meant to clean the dishwasher or the washer. So in the dishwasher, just put it in the little area where you would normally put your little gel pack. Mm-hmm. And with the washing machine, uh, you just throw throw it into the washer and and, and just follow the directions. Sure. And actually, don't. Um, it's really important if it's a product you haven't used before or haven't used in a while. Do make sure you you use those. Uh, you follow the directions properly. You want to make sure you're cleaning properly, cleaning safely. One more important tip, no matter what products you're using, cleaning products, window cleaners, uh, you know, those liquid laundry packets, make sure you store them out of sight and out of the reach of children. It's uh, important to clean safe. Yeah, that's smart advice, especially Thanks. that out of reach of children. Um, Brian Sansoni, the Senior Vice President of Communication, Outreach and Membership, telling us about bacteria hotspots like the washing machine and dryer, the dishwasher, kitchen faucets, the refrigerator, remote control, bath toys, cow, uh, shower curtains, and your coffee pot. Uh, definitely some of those hotspots within your home. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. We just spoke with Brian Sassoni of the American Cleaning Institute, who helped us identify where bacteria hotspots are in our homes. Now we want to know how to effectively clean up these areas to, you know, improve our personal hygiene and avoid getting sick. So joining us next on the show to share her expert hygiene and cleaning tips is Kate Shuloff. Kate is the founder of the website and a blog, A Clean Bee, where she experiments with ways to live a cleaner life naturally. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So one of the hot spots uh, we discussed was the washing machine and dryer. So how do you even start cleaning these items? <laughs> sure. It's very important, especially if there's someone who got sick and you had to run a wash and you want to make sure that it's clean after the fact. So what I recommend is if you have a front load washer and dryer, it's a little bit more, you have to be a little bit more careful with how you clean that than a top load. So front load Mm -hmm. washer and dryer, you're going to want to start by filling the bleach compartment with two cups of water or excuse me, two cups of vinegar. 
then you're going to run the hottest and longest setting possible. If the inside of the washer is especially dirty, uh, mm -hmm. you can also choose to run a hot cycle with baking soda first and then do your vinegar cycle just to be super thorough and make sure that the baking soda inside of the drum is actually doing that abrasive cleaning for you first. Then you come in with the vinegar to take care of some of the uh, handle antibacterial problems of mm -hmm. your interior but drum two separate cycles of, of two separate cycles okay. the reason i recommend that you could combine them but it won't be as effective necessarily when you combine vinegar and baking soda they oftentimes cancel each other out oh. so uh break one breaks down the other and you're essentially left with less cleaning power so if you run the first cycle with just the baking soda in the drum the brace of particles of the baking soda will then work to remove any sort of extra residue inside of your drum. Hmm. Your second cycle with the vinegar in the, uh, in the bleach compartment will then take care of um, any sort of bacteria in theory. You could, some people recommend actually putting bleach in this cycle, uh -huh. which is an option for sure. And that's definitely a good cleaning agent. The only risk to that is if there's any sort of leftover bleach after your uh, hot cycle, then you say you do a load of darks, you could potentially have some trouble there. Oh, right. sure. So just be careful mm -hmm. with that. Okay. Which is why I recommend vinegar. Mm -hmm. And and what about your dryer? So for the dryer, my biggest tip is if you're going to actually clean your actual dryer, it's pretty simple. Just take some vinegar. You could even do a solution of one part vinegar, one part water. Spray it inside of the um, the dryer drum. Wipe it down with a microfiber cloth. I prefer that to any other regular Why? cloth because it does a much better job of picking up any sort of bacteria. So just a regular rag, there will be some residue left behind. The microfiber cloth just does a much better job mm. of picking up any sort of residue. Then okay. beyond that, just some good housekeeping when it comes to your dryer. Something else you always want to make sure you're doing is cleaning out your dryer filter especially if you're using dryer sheets, which can leave a little bit of a chemical residue layer on your dryer filter. And when your dryer filter builds up enough of that residue, it will prevent the dryer filter from actually doing its job of filtering any sort of air, hmm. which can become a fire hazard. So oh, the best wow. way you want to check on that is just run it under some running water. If the water beads up on the top of your dryer filter, you know it's time to give it a wash and you can just do that with a sponge and water or a little bit of soap sponge wash it through make sure that the water runs through the filter seamlessly and then dry completely and then replace it back into your dryer all right well the kitchen is also a big hot spot and i think that this is the one that people think of the most when they're worried about bacteria um so mm -hmm. let's talk about the different appliances in the kitchen and kind of go through them and 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 make sure that we are cleaning them in the right the, the right way that we keep them free from bacteria. Let's start with the fridge. What do you suggest? Fridge is pretty easy to clean. I think it's intimidating to folks because there are a lot of large parts. But essentially, if you have a mix of vinegar and water, maybe even if you uh, soak some lemon peels in that vinegar to give it a little bit of a kinder scent and some extra cleaning power, spray that everywhere. Let it sit for a couple of minutes. And I think that that's probably the best trick when you're cleaning any sort of surface hmm. is to let your um, solution sit on the surface for a couple of minutes before you wipe down. And of course, again, I much prefer using a microfiber cloth to wipe down than just a regular cleaning rag. But honestly, either one would work. Um, for any tough spots where you have any sort of, you know, mess of any kind or some leak, uh, and you need a little bit of extra abrasive power, bring that baking soda back out, mm. sprinkle it on top of whatever that mess is. Again, you can let it sit for a couple of minutes and then take a sponge, scrub it away. It should come right off. So so the bathroom, as we move kind of through our house, another hot spot for for bacteria. What what can we do there? That probably for me is where I think, ah, gross. Yeah. Especially when Fair you have enough. kids and they don't clean up after themselves. <laughs> or That's great, all I'll or say. great aim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally fair. Um, yes. So when it comes to your bathroom, again, if you have a tile bathroom, mm -hmm. really easy. Keep that vinegar water solution. This is really my mainstay in my home. Um, spray that on surfaces. Let it sit for a couple of minutes. Again, that's the number one 
secret to success. And then wipe everything down. If you are not comfortable using any sort of cloth in your bathroom, it's perfectly fine to use paper towels, especially if you're cleaning your toilet. I prefer using paper towels. You can throw them right away. Um, And then in the toilet bowl, unless it's extremely dirty, you're perfectly fine. Again, going to your baking soda, sprinkle some into the toilet uh, basin, let it sit for a couple minutes, use your toilet brush, scrub around, flush. You should be good to go. Um, You gave the caveat, though, that if it's really dirty, what do we do in those cases? Then you can use any sort of conventional toilet bowl cleaner. Is, purchase at the store. is the thought from you just because of the, the more toxic? Is that why you choose to do this vinegar water mm-hmm. mix? Absolutely. That's definitely a big part of it, especially if you have kids. It's just I think it's better to be safe than sorry. If they're spending any sort of decent amount of time, if you're potty training or if you do bath time every day, I just don't think that it's worth putting your child in contact with potentially toxic chemicals unless it's absolutely necessary. So vinegar and water and baking soda – Quite frankly, you can get almost any cleaning job done with those three, your toilet, your tub, tile floors. The only time you want to be careful with vinegar is if you have any sort of stone surface, granite, marble, or other type of stone tile in your bathroom. Then you will want to avoid vinegar vinegar because it can, over time, it can damage the surface of those materials. So as an alternative to that, another solution you can use if you don't want to do a store-bought dedicated stone surface cleaner, which is fine, Mm -hmm. but you can alternatively use a mixture of um, a rubbing alcohol. You're going to want to use a tiny bit of dish soap, just a drop and water. And that's good enough to get your surface perfectly clean. Interesting. I'd never heard of that kind of complement of of materials to clean something like that. Uh, Before we let you go, how often should we be cleaning these hot spot areas? So... If we want to talk about the bathroom, my recommendation is once a week. Uh, And that doesn't have to be a deep clean. It can be really quick, spray down of surfaces, let it sit for five minutes, and then wipe everything down. And a really good time to do this if you have kids is while they're in the bath. Mm. So keep a little cleaning kit since it's Mm. non-toxic. If you're using the vinegar and water, for instance, you can keep it under their sink without having to worry about them getting into it and hurting themselves. Just keep that in a microfiber cloth under your kid's sink. Do a little spray while they're in the bathtub. Once they get out of the bath, give it an extra rinse and a little spray as well. Wipe it all down, dry it off, and you're good to go. Plus, if your, kids, the- are, if your kids are a little extra germy, like it's not going to be toxic to them. You can get a little behind the ears or right. something like that. Awesome. There you go. Exactly. They might smell like salad dressing, but you know, maybe that's cute. Yeah, it's cute. It's endearing. Yeah, it's endearing. Sure. Hey, thank you so much for your tips, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You bet. Kate Shuloff is the founder of A Clean Bee, a website and a blog where she experiments with ways to live a cleaner life naturally. To learn more, you can visit acleanbee.com. No one likes a fake friend. We want intimate friends we can trust, talk to, rely on. People who will understand us, people who will laugh with us. But in an age of Facebook friends and Instagram followers and superficiality, how do we deepen these forms with sincere connections, sincere friendships. Well, joining us today is friendship expert Shasta Nelson. Shasta's authored a lot of books about friendship. She's also the founder of GirlfriendCircles.com. She was uh, Facebook's media spokesperson and friendship expert for Friends Day in 2018. She's with us to talk about going beyond the superficial and really connecting with people we call our friends. Welcome, Shasta. Thank you. That's such a great topic. Love it. I love it. It's a great topic because we all want deeper connections. We're being told all the time uh, through research and science that, you know, it's it's the connection that's important, not the number of Facebook friends and things that you have. Um, and in your book, this really got our attention. You talk about how most of us probably have intimacy gaps in our life. So talk about what some of examples of intimacy gaps we might have. 
Yeah, it's such a great awareness. When I've been studying loneliness, a lot of people didn't identify with it initially because they were like, oh no, I'm around people all day or I have great people skills or I have friends. And we actually have a hard time sometimes identifying that feeling of recognizing that we're lonely and it's not from lack of interaction, but it's from lack of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And we know that when we can say, you know, wow, I don't know who to call and share this part of me with, or I don't feel like this part of me is being seen, or I don't know that I feel completely safe in these relationships, or would they really be there for me if I really needed them. Um, and so we start feeling like I could, I have people to go socialize with, or I have mm-hmm. what we'd call a fun group or, you know, golf group or a girls night out or something. And I know people from work and I'm friendly, but like the question is how loved and supported do you feel? And when you ask yourself that question and, and saying, wow, I could use a little more love in that, in that place. That's where, that's the intimacy gap. It's us saying, I want something that feels a little closer, a little safer, a little more enjoyable. Yeah. So did you coin the phrase frentimacy? I did because I was on a campaign for a couple of years to just talk about how we need more intimacy in our lives outside of romance. But of course, every time I use the word intimacy, no matter how I kept trying, they were like, (laughs) sex, sex. And I was like, no, no. And I was like, no, that's the whole point is that that's not, those are not synonymous. We need so much more intimacy, platonic intimacy in our lives. So finally, I coined the word (laughs) to open a new folder in our head. So so tell people how you define frentimacy. So frentimacy is any relationship where two people both feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. And so um, we can have different levels of that. And I teach different uh, kind of depths of that. We would want that in all healthy friendships, even on lower levels of relationships. We want to both feel seen. Uh, We want to understand each other. We want to feel like we get each other, that we feel witnessed. We want to have fun together. We want it to be satisfying, to be enjoyable. Uh, to laugh, to get the reward of friendship. And that third thing is we want it to feel safe. We need it to feel trustworthy. We need it to feel reliable. We need to feel like it's consistent and there. So those are the three three things that we measure the health of any relationship by. And so uh, we want vulnerability, we want positivity, and we want consistency. And those three things together make up that definition of we both want to feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. So if we both want us to... We both want these things, and then what keeps us from from having them and having deepening frentimacy? It's a great question, and I've been surveying you know thousands and thousands of people on this, and I have a frentimacy quiz that I have on my website. If anyone's interested in doing that at shastanelson.com, mm-hmm. and it will ask you to take you know kind of an inventory of your friendships and how you show up in your friendships, and will give you a score in positivity, consistency, and vulnerability. Because the answer to your question is, it depends on. It's different for each of us. For some of us, we have high consistency and high positivity, which mm-hmm. means we see each other regularly and we have fun together, but for like for a lot of men's friendships specifically, we've modeled and taught men to do friendship in that way, but they often lack vulnerability. We have not done a really great job of giving permission, modeling and encouraging vulnerability in men's friendships. And so that would be the area that would need to be increased to make the biggest difference, perhaps for some relationships. Um, other relationships, uh, we have a lot of relationships where it might be high in consistency and high in vulnerability, where we are, we know a lot about each other and we've shared a lot and mm-hmm. we are interacting a lot, but we like the positivity has dropped out. It feels draining. It feels exhausting. We're not having fun. It's like just been hard. It's, it's uh, depressing. <laughs> and so we need to actually increase the positivity in our relationships. So you, when you start seeing all three, the question then becomes, what will help uh, Lisa improve her friendships might look different than what Richie needs to do, which is look different than what Shasta needs to do. Yeah. And it's really the bigger question is which of these three positivity, consistency, or vulnerability would make the biggest difference if you were to focus on that and, and build that up in your friendships. But certainly during life, you know, you have different uh, things to give, different kind amounts of time or positivity, or you know, you know, your, yeah. your our lives uh, feel you know, full in these areas, even if we know an area is lacking, but we maybe uh, are not in the in the in the right, uh, maybe mind frame or commitment to do it. Why should we still make an effort? Why does it matter? Yeah, it matters so much. And I just get, this gets me on my soapbox. I could do like <laughs> an up. hour. I'll, I'm, I'll give you a hand. I'll give you a hand. Come on. Come on I'm up. like, there. be careful what you're offering, Richie. I could be up there for an hour being like, here's all the research. Well, you no, don't have an hour. <laughs> it's like, it's truly, and I'm not exaggerating here. 
when we look at the studies from a health perspective, there is very few things that matter, if anything, maybe sleep, but even your sleep is improved by healthy relationships. Like loneliness messes up your sleep. But uh, beyond that, relationships, like when you look at what, what helps you survive cancer, relationships, more than uh, any other factor. When we look at what helps reduce stress, relationships. When we look at longevity, relationships. When we look at mental health, relationships, immune systems, relationships. And across the board, we've been told that it's our health, that it's our it's, related to our diet and doing more sit-ups and doing kale smoothies. And, you know, we have a whole list of things that we think are really important. And uh, truly, if you have healthy lifestyle habits and feel connected, those are the best combination. But there's studies out there that show if you have to choose between those two, if you have to choose between taking care of your loneliness and taking, doing healthy lifestyle habits, Mm -hmm. you're better off dealing with the, with the loneliness Mm. that is doing more damage to feel lonely or disconnected damages your health, the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's twice as harmful as being obese and it's the, does the equivalent damage on your body as being a lifelong alcoholic. So across the board, wow. you're, this is, this is the issue. And I'm just shocked that we haven't talked about this more and really, 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 really believe the research because the data is super clear. We're talking with Shasta Nelson about the importance of, uh, of friendships, of, of relationships, of connectivity with those around us. I want to not necessarily push back, but most of this nation is lonely. You know, mm-hmm. when you talk statistics, I think they say mm-hmm. that we went from a, a standard of like 2.7 friends to like 1.6 friends mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. There are probably a lot of people listening to this who, if they, if you ask them who are your friends, would not be able to answer a single name. What what can those people do? Like how how do as adults do we now nurture these relationships uh, that we haven't for a long time or create friendships that that don't even exist? Yes, it's a, such an important question. And you are right. Right now we're showing about half of us are saying we don't even know who we would confide in if we want. Like we don't have somebody to confide in. So absolutely, the loneliness is palpable um, in our country and in a lot of Western countries. And actually we're seeing it just in more and more countries. So the most important thing that we need to be doing is looking at who we know already, even if you don't know them well, even if they're loose ties, like where can you show up in your life more consistently to help strengthen some of those ties? And so very few of us are going to be really excited about initiating dinners out with people we don't know and like making big plans. Mm -hmm. So the easiest thing to do, because consistency is one of the three requirements of healthy relationships, the most important and easy thing we can do is figure out who we are already consistent with, like at work, at church, at, um, at our kids' school, at that association that we're part of and, and, or decide where we want to be consistent and say, okay, I'm going to join that network. I'm going to join that, that, uh, sports group. I'm going to join that, uh, community there. And I'm going to be consistent for the purpose of building relationships. And eventually we need to build our relationships and increase our consistency outside of those networks. We want to do that one-on-one, but initially the most important thing you can do is commit to being somewhere consistently. And then once you're starting to see the same faces over and over and over, that's where you can start bringing in the other two requirements of all relationships, which is positivity. So what can I do to, to express gratitude to this person? How can I give compliments? What can I do to bring laughter? What, what kindness can I show? What, uh, what's, you know, how can I remember their name and make them feel good? So yeah, we want to bring the joy and the positivity. And then that third thing is vulnerability. We want to start asking questions and being curious about their lives and starting to get to know them. And we want to make sure we're sharing a little bit about ourselves and we want to pick up on that next time and like get to know them a little bit more. And so I can guarantee anybody that if you practice the three requirements of relationship, positivity, consistency, and vulnerability, we can guarantee you will bond with people. There's, it doesn't even matter who the people are at the end of the day. You don't have to be so judgmental about do, do our lives look the same? Do we have enough in common? At the end of the day, if you practice these three things, you will feel closer to people and you will bond. Uh, it seems to me that consistency is is what you are proposing is the first step for those who may think, ah, you know, I'm an adult and it, it and and I'm trying to find more friends as an adult. It, would that be it correct is. and assume? So, it so is. as we are looking, uh, you know, of, of who to invest that in, or you know, who to reciprocate that with, can you talk a little bit more about the qualities of a great friend? Yeah, I mean, we could just keep it easy and say the qualities of a great friend are somebody who does these three requirements. I mean, it's somebody who's showing up in your life that you can rely on. Um, it's somebody who at the beginning that showing up doesn't have to mean, you know, it shouldn't mean, uh, 
doing everything for you and showing up when, uh, right. when everything, but, but it just means simply <laughs> like day. putting the phone down and looking at you when we're talking, it means like smiling and making eye contact, you know, it's like being reliable in that interaction. Um, and it's somebody who practices positivity. And I really want to clarify positivity does not mean what we're talking about. It doesn't mean we only talk about positive things, but it means how do we leave the other person feeling after our interaction? Mm. And the research shows we have to have five positive interactions for every negative feeling or interaction in order to keep a relationship healthy. So our job is to make a lot more, a lot more deposits than withdrawals. And, um, and then somebody who's willing to be seen that vulnerability piece, you know, can we ask questions? Can we share ourselves? And at the end of the day, that is what makes for a healthy friend. All the rest of it is honestly examples of how we do those three things. So some of us mm-hmm. might say, I, lo- I want a funny friend. Well, that's right. an example of positivity. I'm just, we say, I want a friend who's there for me. Well, that's an example of consistency. You know, so everything else when we talk about what we want in friendship is an example or an outcome of one of these three things. Hey, Shasta, how do you do with this? You know, it, relationships ebb and flow. And it's amazing <laughs> when I'm writing a book and I'm talking about certain friendships. Yeah. And then, you know, eight, eight, nine months later, when the book's coming back in my lap for editing, and I'm just like, oh, wait, that person's moved away. And I'm not that close anymore. Like, oh, wait, this person. And it's so funny to see the the ebb and flow of relationships. So I'm very, very, very committed to my friendships. And uh, I don't think you can read the research and not be practicing it as much as you possibly can. And I live in a transient area in San Francisco hmm. where people move away. And I'm like considering making people sign contracts that they're going to stay here, (laughs) be my friend for 10 years. Well, how do you deal with that though? You may be committed to consistency and vulnerability and positivity, but that doesn't necessarily mean everyone else in your life is. How do you adjust to that sort of ebb and flow as you call it, or, you know, people going through different phases of their lives, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Yep. No, I, I think it's important to have, I'm very much a person who teaches that we need to have a circle of friends because anytime you're expecting every one person to be there, it's just too vulnerable of a relationship. Like right. they is fragile. People move, they go through stuff. They're caring for aging parents. They're having kids. And so I'm often somebody who is quick to say, if you're starting to feel resentful toward a friend for mm-hmm. not being there for you, it's often not a sign that she's or he is a bad friend, but it's often a sign that you don't have enough friends. And so that we really do need to have a, you know, my goal is to have five to 10 friends who are the relationships that we are journeying life together. And those might not be all 10 that I'm confiding in on a regular basis, but they're people that I could and that I would be there for. And so it's, there is an ebb and flow that certain Mm -hmm. times there's a couple people that I might be closer to and see more frequently. Um, But yeah, my goal is to have a healthy community of people that I can rely on and, and that they can rely on me and that we're really showing up in that way. But it is, it's tricky. We live in a world that does not, we live in a world right now that is not oriented to relationships being what we need the most, even though the research keeps showing that we are very much caught up in productivity and consumerism and uh, achievement. And we keep thinking those are the things that are going to make us, leave us feeling happiest and most proud at the end of the day. And, um, and we always know, we always, everyone always says on your deathbed, the things you regret, like we know it, but we don't know it. (laughs) We aren't really living our lives like we believe the data. Do you think that the deeper the connection, that the longer the friendship will last? Typically, yes. So here's two statistics that are interesting. One is that we are replacing half our close friends every seven years. So that means uh, if you, if you, Lisa, were confiding in five or six people right now that you kind of felt like were the people you were closest to, chances sure. are high that two or three of them were not the people you were calling and confiding in seven years ago. Yeah. And chances are high that seven years from now, you might be confiding in somebody you haven't even yet met. That's you know? really and interesting because so, yeah, looking so. back, I can look back and say, yeah, absolutely, that, that has happened. Yeah. And, and, and there's different feelings, right, of like regret or, or mm-hmm. confusion about, well, why is that? But when you kind mm-hmm. of accept it as sort of the ebb and flow in life, then it makes the future not seem so like, oh, who will be there? Who won't? Yeah. Right? So so to some degree, when your question is like the people I'm closest to, will they last the longest? Yeah. And I would say it depends on if you're closest to them in one context. If you're only closest to them when we're at work or because our kids are on the same volleyball team or because we go to the same church or we live in the same neighborhood, mm-hmm. then those relationships are probably not as likely to make it once that context changes. So once we no longer work at the same job, live in the same neighborhood, have our kids on the same team, then those relationships are often the ones that don't survive the long term. The ones who survive the long terms are the ones who have practiced being friends outside of one context so that even if we don't work together anymore, we're still used to getting together and going hiking. And even if our kids aren't on the same team, that's okay because we still like each other and we're not only we're not relying on only seeing each other at the games. We're actually getting together and doing stuff as families, yeah. you know? So those are the relationships that will make it. 
um, yeah, we want, and the other statistic I was going to share with you yeah. just came out of university of Kansas a year ago. And I find it fascinating that, uh, a researcher did study there to identify how long it took to feel close to somebody and people self-reported when they moved to a new area, it took 50 hours or r- roughly five zero wow. to go from a stranger to what they would call a casual friend. And then it took 80 to hundred hours before they said they, we felt like we were friends and then 200 hours before somebody felt like they were best friends. Wow. And so I know, so I, those were higher numbers than I expected, but I've always been teaching that we, that it takes time to get to know each other. Even if you instantly know you want to be friends, you right. still have to put in the hours to get to know each other and build your pattern and figure that all out. So I'm a big fan of like, once you've made that investment with somebody, if you've already put in a hundred, 150 hours, yeah. like you're way better off, like, <laughs> like taking care of that investment than going and starting over all the time. <laughs> uh, Shasta, one more question before we let you go. Um, in an effort for me to be a healthier individual, will you be my friend? <laughs> Richie, didn't uh, you just listen, listen was, to what she said? you got to put in like 200 hours. I know. I was going to say, are you flying here? Are we doing right. lunch or what? <laughs> well, it depends very much on your answer right now. <laughs> well, I can promise you this. We can always be friendly with each other. And if you want to hang out with me, then we can develop a friendship. That is a wise, <laughs> wise answer. Shasta Nelson is a friendship expert, author of Frentimacy, How to Deepen Friendships for Lifelong Health and Happiness, and founder of GirlfriendCircles.com. Thanks for being with us, Shasta. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much. Did you know that on average, only 21% of women graduate college with a degree in science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, or STEM degrees, as they're often called? This makes for underrepresentation in the workforce. So what is it that keeps women from pursuing degrees in these fields? Susan Madsen specializes in women's leadership. She's with us this morning to talk about a new study she's been working on that will shed some light on why women aren't choosing STEM degrees. Welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks for coming back to the show. Sure. Appreciate your research. So why is there such a big push in the United States in terms of getting more women in STEM? Well, I'll tell you, it comes really from the workforce. And more and more companies, as we know, are tech companies yeah. uh, based in, in all the STEM areas. And these days, companies all over the world actually look at diversity more because they know that when you have men and women working together or people of color, you know, all diversity, that actually the companies make more money. They're more innovative. They have better decision making. I mean, the case is pretty clear that actually you do better in organizations, even like state legislatures do better and city councils when you have diversity. So when companies are asking for diversity, you really want more women graduating from college in those degrees. And and obviously more women will work in STEM degree or areas if they graduate with more STEM degrees. So it, it, so why is this a challenge and, and where are we on working towards a solution? We have made some progress in the United States on women in STEM, but it's slow in other ways. And the reason it's so interesting and still a challenge is that girls and boys, when they're young, are socialized differently. Mm -hmm. And um, no matter what people say, there's unconscious bias, there's unconscious socialization that happened. So even at junior high and high school, let's talk about high school and high school counselors and teachers. There's just, they don't know sometimes what they're saying and different things, but when a, a young woman comes to them and says, you know, I love math or something. They're like, oh, something feels wrong with that because they're not in the traditional areas that people are used to seeing them in. So even unconsciously, parents will will move their daughters to more traditionally, you know, elementary school. All these are important. Social work and all of those are so important. But that that really gears young women towards towards those traditional things, when in reality, they may love the STEM fields if they had an opportunity to learn about them. So what can we do about that? Oh, there's many things that we can do. And there's some progress being made, but still lots more to be done. First, you start at the beginning. How can you socialize girls to like STEM? Actually, one of the biggest things is role models. If they do not Mm -hmm. see women in those positions, if they don't see any women working 
in the sciences or in tech, they're not going to ever aspire. So it's the aspiration that makes the difference. So if they don't aspire to be in there, they're not going to go to college and in those degrees and so forth. So what can we do to increase that? We can help them see more women. Uh, we have across the nation, there's things like programs like Expand Your Horizons or She Techs or different kinds of programs where they actually bring fourth and fifth and sixth grade girls and they see, they get workshops from women who work in those professions and so forth. So that's like the foundational thing. You have them see more women, you talk about that, talk about more options early on, and then you have to follow through with that in different ways. So in high school, if they're, if they're still not doing that or they're not mm -hmm. even choosing STEM-related classes or not getting all their math, higher level math, they're just not going to go into those areas in college. I um, had an experience with, with one of my daughters did a, the She Tech and learned coding and, and oh, had yeah. this opportunity to do that in like fourth and fifth grade. Now, this is the youngest of, of, of all of my children. Um, do you think that there is a more of a community push for opportunities like that? And if so, how can we as parents find them for our kids? Absolutely. There, there is more of a push. And I'll tell you, if you're just watching the news, if you're starting to pay attention, mm -hmm. you'll find some of those. And in different states, there's, there's groups. In, the, in Utah, I run the Utah Women in Leadership Project. On my website, there's actually a whole list of summer camps for girls, coding camps, I mean, all kinds of opportunities. And I would think at universities, if you go to your, your universities in your area, you can find some of those. Just Google searches can can get those as well. Just so they aware. are available and they have shown to what we call move the needle. Um, and they're pretty exciting actually for, for girls to participate yeah. in. And then we just have to keep that going in those conversations and we have to work more with teachers and counselors and other what I call influencers so that they understand even those subtle what we call micro-messaging really can can have a young woman or a girl go in one direction or another. So we have to really encourage. One of the things that I fear is, uh, l like you mentioned, in our language, just the way that we socialize um, with young women about what fields they would go into. I, I don't know that I'm saying the wrong thing yeah. or the right thing, but I fear that I would say the wrong <laughs> thing. What, what are some of those messages that, that we say on a daily basis that would be discouraging towards women in this so this is going to sound like it doesn't relate specifically to STEM, but it comes. Uh, it does. Okay. And it comes through the STEM research. So one of the things I speak about and talk about and write about is that we unconsciously socialize our girls into a state of being and our boys into a state of becoming. And if you've read mindset at all, it's fixed mindset versus growth mindset. So for girls, we unconsciously socialize them into you are smart, you are pretty, you are whatever, like it's a state of being. And to boys, you are becoming, you worked hard, you are moving. And so when then the, the girl gets a D on a math test in fourth grade, she goes from, I am smart, now I am not smart. I am not good. Huh. If a boy has the same thing, we socialize him into saying, oh my gosh, I didn't work hard enough. So effort versus ability. And some of that research comes up through the STEM. That's huge. Don't that's you think that's huge? huge? Mm -hmm. and, that's huge. But it starts with the looks, believe it or not. And, and funny, uh, even... Uh, with older people, men, if they introduce their wives, what's the first thing they say? They say, here is my beautiful wife. Yeah. That looks comes out so, so quickly. Um, and so I have a new granddaughter. And so I'm, I look at her. She's just beautiful. And, but I'm like, you look so smart. <laughs> I'm like, you can become. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not good right. at it myself. We'll, we will become more finessed in our language <laughs> yes, as we practice more. Exactly. Well, I thought it was interesting that one of your reports stated that more women are entering STEM majors in college, but a huge number drop out. Absolutely. So why is this happening? Oh, for many, many reasons. I'll give you just a couple. Yeah. But one is that, you know, when they go, they don't see role models, first of all. So oftentimes there's male factors. Faculty, only male. And that's fine. Some men can be really good. But if you're not seeing women teach, you're not envisioning mm. that. So under the surface kinds of things. And also, I have to say that many people who teach in university and college settings actually don't study 
what we call pedagogy, and that is how to teach. And there's all kinds of gender differences in how you teach with men and women. Uh, one quick example, this is not deep pedagogical, but a couple months ago, a mother told me about her daughter's experience, and she walked into a classroom in, the, in my state of Utah, and she was slightly late on the first day, and there were all men in there, the teacher who was a male, actually looked at her as she was walking in and said, you're in the wrong place. Mm. And it was (laughs) just that assumption. So that welcoming that they get in there, they just don't feel like they belong. Um, Women who have been athletes and in really competitive fields, speech and debate in high school and stuff, sometimes they're the ones that can can endure because they're used to that. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of times you actually teach a little differently when you're teaching to mixed gender versus, or just women versus just a bunch of men. Um, So those are a few examples. Interesting, right? It's very interesting. So I'm interested in knowing about after women graduate from uh, college in in a STEM field, do they thrive in in these fields in the in the workforce? Do they meet more challenges, or is they endure many challenges? Actually, it matters the organization of the company can make a difference. Yesterday, I was uh, speaking to at a company that was very STEM oriented, and actually, there's quite a few women there. There's, um, but they have a women's group that I spoke to. There's some interesting kind of cultural things, but many companies struggle. I've had CEOs of tech companies come and say, why can't I keep women? Well, I have them describe their culture and their compensation packages and so forth. And I'm like, it's because you have a total masculine culture. And some of them will say, I don't even know what that means because it's <laughs> what designed. It's it's just designed like the compensation. It's all like, you know, when it's competitive, when it's you versus them and you you thrive. Men thrive more on those kinds of things. Women, same intellect, same skills, same background, thrive with different kinds of compensation packages. So if you're if you're hmm. just interested in designing one kind of male, more masculine culture, you're not naturally going to keep women. So um, some companies have done well to really look at that. But you have to learn a lot more <laughs> because everything has been done masculine through the years. You know, not everything, but most. Um, and so it's interesting. So the companies, there's lots of research. There's lots to learn. Yeah, and lots to learn. And companies can do that to, to really learn and make their environment good for both men and women. We're talking with Susan Madsen about uh, women in STEM fields and uh, women in leadership. And you started to talk around a little bit about uh, the pay gap between men and women. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Are we getting any better? Uh, the pay gap. We are making slight progress. It matters what state you live in. Uh, but there is slight progress. One interesting thing with t- to do with the STEM research mm-hmm. that we've done is that STEM fields are some of the highest paying fields. And so when you look at STEM and, uh, men and women, there's still a gap but it's actually not as wide in other, you know, as in other fields. And one other thing that our research uh, brought to the surface is that women who graduate in STEM but work in other fields versus men, they, they actually make more money than men. So, well, that's th- so it is encouraging. Um, and I, I also want to say it, it depends on where you're living. But many businesses are really looking at the business case of why diversity, you know, diverse sure. folks needs to be in there. But one of those elements is looking at your pay and doing some good analysis of what are you paying different people and what is their gender and what, you know, what's their race and ethnicity and so forth. And really doing some serious look at those to make sure there's more equity and equality. You know, for those who are listening to this discussion and thinking, oh, these are things that I hadn't even been aware of, of, of how I'm, you know, unconsciously encouraging or discouraging you know, the, the women in my life from going into STEM fields or keeping them there. What do you wish that everyone knew to sort of le- level that playing field um, so that everyone benefits from it? I think the more that you just become educated, become more aware 
um, of these issues that just brings what I say unconsciousness to consciousness. You make better decisions. If you're interested, I'll give you a couple of books, uh, yeah. ideas. If you're interested in, in basically girls and boys and raising that element of it, which I find so fascinating uh, with kids and grandkids and people I work with, I love the book Why Gender Matters. Um, if you s- just search for that, uh, the latest version, it really looks at some fascinating things, even for from babies, how babies and their eyesight and their hearing are different mm-hmm. between boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And a second book that I really recommend in understanding the difference in confidence with both genetics and upbringing is called The Confidence Code by Shipman and Kay. And that one really, I read that right when it came out, and it really helped shape um some of my thinking in terms of the differences and things that we can do really to help both boys and girls um, really thrive. And that's what we want, right? Absolutely. Uh, does it get pretty frustrating for you in some of this research? Like I, I knowing what you know and, and seeing these things continue, and, and you mentioned several times, a slow growth, a slow yeah. improvement. Clearly identifying a problem and then not seeing. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you deal ways, with that? Yeah. In some ways it is frustrating. In other ways it's exciting because I love change and I love possibilities. And I guess I'm a pretty optimistic person. And when I see change as a whole, it feels feels frustrating sometimes because the numbers don't change. But as I work one-on-one with people, not just women, but men as well, there's more sure. men in this conversation as well, or groups of people. And yesterday I spoke to over 100 people at one company. And the engagement, they're, they're like, this is important. You you start seeing the lights coming on yeah. that, that even in men, but women too, some women are like, this is not important or whatever. But when you see that, it brings me hope that one by one or group by group or community by community, um, that we can really make a difference in helping both boys and girls and young women and young men and men and women thrive and flourish in using their voice, getting their confidence and really making a difference in the world. Do you have any recommendations from moving forward, uh, specifically for educators and and business businesses, I the the thing I'm on a kick with right now yeah. is I've been doing some serious work for the last five years on unconscious bias. That is the root of so much that's happening. So I've learned how to teach that now. I've worked very hard to do that, but that's one of the things is to explore that and think about that and study that. Just raise your awareness of that. And more teachers and counselors are doing that as well, trying to be, mm-hmm. be on that. But really be more thoughtful as you look at if you're making a judgment on a boy or girl or young you know teen in your class just think in your mind would I have that same opinion if that person was a man or a boy or whatever like I'm making these judgments on gender so I catch myself all the time Mm -hmm. and and I've been studying this for years so I'm having a great time with myself trying to improve Mm -hmm. Um, so those and just just reading and being aware. I think that can make a difference. That's the place to start. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here with us. Susan Madsen, where can people find out more about what you're doing and more about you? Well, uh, in the state of Utah specifically, we have the Utah Women and Leadership Project, utwomen.org. And it actually has a global tab with tons of research around the world as well. Um, And that links to other sources and my bio and so forth. I do uh, work in Utah, but I also do national and global work as well. So I'll be doing some work in a couple of months for the State Department, um, speaking there. And then uh, a couple months ago, I did a workshop in the President's Palace of Lithuania, actually. So I love it, and I'm passionate about it. And we have lots of resources online. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, bringing our attention to this and helping us uh, have continued research on it as well. Thank you. Appreciate you being here.